is a podcast about all things St. Pete, hosted by the one and only St. Pete is Super Cool. As always, this is Sarabe, and I'm with Gabby and Taylor of Casa today. How are you ladies? Hi, great. Thank you so much for being here. Hi. Thank you for having us. No, of course. Thank you for having us. I've been trying to talk to you guys for a little bit, so I'm happy that we finally were able to work something out. Yes, October was a very, very busy month for yes, us, so, yes. um, but we're glad we could finally have this conversation. Yeah, I think 2021 in general has just been like, go, 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 busy, busy, busy. Yeah. We had kind of 2020 to just kind of be like, oh, okay, so this is what it's like to kind of relax, but also yeah. have entire like anxiety all the time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So let's start with really like, how did CASA start? What is the history behind CASA? So CASA actually began in the 70s as part of St. Petersburg Free Clinic um, as an eight bed shelter. And then in the 80s, we um, were incorporated as our own 501c3. We then were able to accommodate 22 participants in our shelter. Um, After that, in the 90s, we grew to a 30-bed shelter, and then in 2015, we opened one of the largest domestic violence shelters in the state of Florida um, that can accommodate around 100 individuals, um, and we've really also grown a lot of our non-residential programs as well. The cool part is, you know, we really started with the grassroots effort, and Mm -hmm. it's really nice to see how far, you know, we've grown and coming from just an eight bed shelter and then now a hundred plus bed shelter is pretty amazing so yeah I imagine I mean it's like a great feeling for you guys because like you truly are doing something like really wonderful and good and then to just kind of like help more and more and more people you know I I imagine it's a really good feeling Mm -hmm. absolutely so then what does CASA like stand for So CASA stands for Community Action Stops Abuse. That's what the acronym stands for. Um, And it really is at the heart of everything we do. We always talk about community action. Mm -hmm. Like Gabby Mm -hmm. said, we started as a grassroots organization. Um, Our volunteers are really the lifeblood of our organization. And it really takes a whole community to come together and stand up to the silence that surrounds domestic violence. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing, too, is that domestic violence is really, you know, not majorly talked about. It's kind of hush-hush. It kind of stays in the home. So just trying to spread that word of really just standing up to silence and really making it um, more aware in our community. Yeah, I I think that's the, like, the best thing you can do is to make it aware because when more people are aware of it and they can see it, and they feel like powerful enough to like stand in and like stop it it like really does because abusers don't want to be called out mm-hmm. they don't you know they want they want to keep it hush hush mm-hmm. um so yeah it has to start with the community Absolutely. you know and you yeah. guys posted something interesting too on your instagram today about like um how to be like a bystander and what to like see and how to help too which i thought was really interesting when i was Um, scrolling through Instagram today. Can we talk just a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, We talk, we do a training at CASA called How Mm -hmm. to Be a Better Bystander. So uh, you can look for that on our website. We do regularly host webinars that you can sign up for. Um, But we talk a lot about how to be an active or the difference between an active bystander or a passive bystander. And genuinely, when it comes to domestic violence, just being a bystander is the most important thing. So often in our community, and we see a lot of viral videos related to violence or sexual assault where people are just kind of standing around filming. 
not mm-hmm. doing anything at all. I hate that so and, much. And one of the things we actually talk about um, when it comes to being a bystander is it's great to film if you're doing it with the intent to provide it to law enforcement, but don't ever film someone being assaulted and post it online because that is obviously extremely private for that person. Um, but we also talk about a lot of ways people people are scared to get involved. Mm-hmm. They don't want to get in the middle of something. Mm-hmm. They don't know if they could be physically hurt. But there's a way you can be a bystander without inserting yourself into the middle of something. You hear something going on down the street, you can whistle. You can do something to mm-hmm. distract. You can make noise within a safe distance. Um, there are a lot of other things you can do to be a bystander. Yeah, one thing I wanted to mention is is that part of our training, we talk about how um, how do you can help, but also do it in a safe manner for that survivor. Mm-hmm. So how can you help without putting them in further danger, right? Because that is also like kind of a tricky balance on how you can intervene and yeah. really be of help without you know, maybe if you called law enforcement, if you heard your neighbors, you know, fighting, you called law enforcement and they show up, you know, you don't know if you're going to put them in further danger. You want to hear it, um, you know, as it's happening. You may know that your neighbors fight all the time, but, you know, you don't want to call if something actively isn't happening because once the police shows up and they say, well, nothing's going on here, then, you know, that abuser may come to more questions of like, well, who did you tell the abuse was happening? Why did they call the police, you know? So it could really put the survivor in further danger. So in that training, we really talk about how to really be of help, but keeping safety in mind. Yeah, and I, I have a self-defense like background. And so like, I, I, I obviously can defend myself. I'm not too worried about that. Um, but even like thinking about too, like I think to myself, like, what would you, like, what would I do if I saw like something mm-hmm. happening to someone like would I really be able to like be someone who could help that person in the correct manner mm-hmm. and even with like my self-defense background I don't really I don't really know if if I could like what do you do in that situation yeah, you know sometimes like, a, like you know mm-hmm. you don't want to hurt them and and it's a big crisis moment mm-hmm. right so it's mm-hmm. like everyone has their own like crisis response you know like fight flies freeze you know like there's so yeah. much like goes on in your head it's just like when you're put in that crisis, it's like, holy crap, like, what do I do, you know? Yeah. And, and one of the things you can do in being a bystander, again, if you are in that moment where you feel like you're kind, you're kind of frozen and you're like, I don't really want to actively get involved in this situation, again, mm-hmm. making noise, if, you act, if you're seeing active violence mm-hmm. in front of you, call 911, um, stay present, don't leave because at when the assault is over, someone needs to be present as a witness for that survivor mm-hmm. and also to maybe help provide resources to that survivor. Uh, we all the time talk about how our 24-hour hotline is not just for victims of domestic violence. If you mm-hmm. ha- if you suspect violence is happening in your family or in your neighborhood, um, you can call and speak with one of our advocates and they can give you advice, safety plan with you or give you advice on how um, that person can access our resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah I, I definitely agree that in a sense, like just domestic, domestic violence and abuse in general, it really is like a community issue because, you know, you can't, it just it, one person, you know, obviously can break it in the home and in that cycle mm-hmm. of abuse because it goes from like family to family, like down the line. Mm-hmm. It, it follows that. Um, but you know, it's a community thing too. The more you call it out, eventually abusers are just gonna be like, well, damn, like, I 
can't get away with this. Well, and that's the thing. It lives in this shadow so much. Before yes. I started working for CASA, I had no idea how prevalent domestic violence actually mm-hmm. is. And I'm always saying, and I, one day I'm going to do it, if, if you took the 6,000 plus incidents of domestic violence that happen in Pinellas County alone every single year and put it, put pinpoints all over a map of where they happened, you wouldn't be able to see the map underneath. It's yeah. happening in your neighborhood. It's happening on your street. It's happening to people you know. It just, no one ever talks about it because mm-hmm. there's a lot of shame and guilt and stigma surrounding it. There's an mm-hmm. issue of survivors being believed. Um, and then and also the issue of holding perpetrators accountable, which yeah. is something we work really hard to partner with our justice system to do at CASA. Mm-hmm. Nice. So let's go like back just a little bit and talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about you ladies and like what is your role here at CASA? What do you guys do specifically? Yeah, so I am the Senior Manager of Program Services at CASA. So what that means is I pretty much um, oversee all of our programs that are not the shelter component. So all of like our outward facing. So and for example, a survivor may not need emergency shelter. They may have a friend that they could stay with safely or they may still be with that abuser, but they're just trying to maybe figure out how they could eventually leave or find out some resources. That's kind of what we offer. So it's really a robust amount, number of programs. We have um, legal programs, which includes our justice advocacy, and we also have free um, injunction attorneys that can provide services for those who want um, a restraining order or some sort of legal protection between them and their survivor, I mean their abuser. And then we also have um, our CPI advocates who help those who may have an open um, CPI case or a child protective um, investigation case. So maybe police got called out, the child was present, the child witnessed the violence, so now there's an investigation going on. And then we also have a bunch of housing programs, which is really exciting because we've really expanded those. Um, we have transitional housing, rapid rehousing, and we have permanent supportive housing. Okay, I love that. That's, that's a lot of stuff to handle. <laughs> <laughs> so my role at CASA is I am the Senior Director of Advancement. So I oversee all of our external facing programs. So our public awareness, um, our marketing, social media, fundraising, our trainings and um, community outreach, volunteer services, all of that. Nice. And then what do you do like here in like this city other than you guys have like the housing you guys have a lot of these programs but like say like someone comes in and they're like a domestic violence case like and they need shelter like what are kind of like those steps that you would move them forward to kind of like restart in their life yeah absolutely so we take Mm walk-ins here at our offices so if let's say someone walked in our doors they would get connected with an advocate Um, that advocate would talk to them kind of find out a little bit about their situation What are some of the barriers that they may be facing? Um, Also safety plan with them, because that's really important. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want to make sure that, you know, everything they do, they think about how to either leave that situation safely or if they're currently in that situation, how to keep themselves safe. Um, And then from there, we just kind of assess um, the services they need, whether that's housing, whether they need, you know, maybe job placement, whether they need some advocacy in the courtroom because there's an open criminal case and they, Mm -hmm. You know, it's a scary to go to court by yourself. Yeah. So have, setting that up. So that's really kind of the gateway. Um, if they don't walk into our offices, there is a 24-hour um, helpline that then they would get connected to. Just everything would be done via phone and then maybe set up an in-person appointment um, to kind of just walk through those um, services and provide resources. 
Okay. Okay, so lots of different options Mm -hmm. for them. And then I guess, like, too, is, like, do you guys do anything with, like, therapy and, like, mental health, kind of? Because that's, like, a lot to go through just mentally and then just having to kind of, like, live with that after, even when you come out the other side. Like, what do you guys, like, do you guys have options for people to get therapy? Yeah, we do. So we actually offer um, in-house support groups. Okay. So those um, are held in person and virtually. So that's an option. Um, And then we also have other community partners and resources where we would just connect that survivor um, to access maybe that individual counseling Mm -hmm. and those types of services. I love that. And those mental health providers really are um, informed, -informed, trauma-informed, and informed on the issue of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Um, Oftentimes we'll hear that maybe survivors went to couples counseling or they went to their, their church's Um, counselor and maybe didn't get safe advice Mm -hmm. when it came to active violence Mm -hmm. happening in the home and so making sure that a survivor while we don't have a mental health provider on site here um, that they're coming through us and making sure that they're getting connected with a domestic violence informed counselor yeah Yeah, because I mean going through that it affects everything down the road mm-hmm. just because I think people forget too just like just because you get on the other end and, and you separate from that abuse and mm-hmm. there's a whole another set of issues that are arising when you're rebuilding and you're healing it's it's not just oh I'm okay now no and, and that's a great point because um even like some survivors they still have like shared custody with their children so it's like how to deal with that constant like trauma reminder of maybe seeing that abuser while dropping off your kids. So mental health does play a big component because like you said, it's just not over once they leave. Yeah, exactly. So then let's talk about the Casa Thrift Store because I just think that's like such a great idea. I found the best cup in there. I, just, <laughs> I love that. It's super pretty. I don't know how it got there. Someone really let that gem go. Um, how did that start and how does that help you guys here at Casa? So, I mean, it started with people wanting to obviously support our organization. We get a ton of what's called in-kind donations, Mm -hmm. donations that go directly to our programs if that's the intent of the donor. But then oftentimes people are donating used items. And so we developed our thrift store, which 100% of the proceeds from our thrift store go directly back into supporting CASA's mission and all of our programs. Um, And we also give out vouchers to our thrift store, to our survivors, who, you know, a big piece of recovering from domestic violence is empowerment. Oftentimes, domestic violence survivors are um, not, they've never been in a situation where they can pick out their own clothing or make their own shopping choices. And so giving a voucher out for them or giving them a gift card or something to go purchase their own items is really empowering and important for them Mm -hmm. as a survivor. So yeah, 100% of our thrift store, you can find amazing gems there, you are so right. (laughs) 100% of the proceeds go back to supporting our mission. We have some very long-term amazing volunteers and staff members Mm -hmm. who have been running that location for a long time and are just so passionate about it. yeah, we we used to do something where we would partner with the indie flea and we would bring like we would pull vintage items, clothing oh, items from our thrift yeah. store and do a pop up Casa Community Boutique at the Indie Flea. So hopefully one day we'll bring that back yeah. um, once it's a little bit more consistent uh, post COVID. But yeah, it's yeah. really awesome. I know COVID's kind of like thrown like a wrench in a lot of like 
fun things, yeah, unfortunately. But, you know. So then, like, what has been your guys' like, greatest success story where, like, you, it, like, really hit you, like, okay, like, I'm, I'm really making a difference here. Like, I, I really am helping. Yeah, and I think um, there's a lot of different components to that, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's, like, the survivor stories and seeing survivors, you know, like Taylor said, being empowered and really growing and then thriving from there. Mm-hmm. Um, those are always um, really heartfelt and special, right? Um, for example, I'll just tell you a quick survivor story. Um, there was um, a survivor who had tried to escape um, their abuser um, from a different state, and they tried to go from that state to another state, and this, the abuser just kept following the survivor. So the survivor never truly felt safe. Um, eventually, that survivor got in contact with us and you know, thought, well, maybe Florida's far enough away that they won't follow me. So she ended up coming into our shelter. Um, she stayed in our shelter for a while. She had case management services. Um, the advocate really worked with her to kind of you know, provide all of the things. Um, that survivor had their own disability, so how to transfer the benefits, how to get a Florida ID, how to get all your documents back. You know, it's a lot of things that go into mm-hmm. it, but just kind of working through those barriers with them. And then it was really exciting because we got our, our transitional housing unit. So she was able to go from our shelter into our transitional housing unit. And now we um, got our permanent supportive housing unit. So she's going from our transitional housing to our permanent supportive housing unit, which is great because that will allow her to save some money mm-hmm. because they only have to pay 30% of their income. So she gets to save some money. She's on her way to getting her GED. Um, she's almost done with that, and she hopes to um, finish off going to college and graduating and saving enough money to eventually buy her own home. That's awesome. Yeah, so those are the stories that really, you know, just kind of warm your heart and really, you know, show that you're making a difference in the community. You're really impacting the survivors' lives. And then on the other token with that is just like how much we've grown, um, which is great because now we're able to provide all of these additional services, such as the transitional housing, such as the permanent supportive housing, to survivors to really not just provide just case management. It's really a beginning-to-end type of service. Yeah. You guys had one woman who at the our auction you guys had at a Green Bench, mm-hmm. and she shared her story a little bit. She didn't go into too many details, you know, but pretty much said, you know, she was a domestic violence survivor, and mm-hmm. you know that she was like just like you know if I didn't have Casa, I don't know where I would be. And I was just like, it's really it's nice, yeah. You know, I mean, it really is at the end of the day just so important yeah. to have somebody. Who can with an unbiased view just be there to sit next to you mm-hmm. and support you yeah and mm-hmm. and support your choices no matter what they are and not have an opinion on yeah. the choices that you're making because at the end of the day mm-hmm. that's what it's about it yeah. you can't force somebody in or out of a situation it they have to do it for themselves yeah we're here to support you with all of the resources you would mm-hmm. need and like Gabby said, being able to um, navigate every piece of the system that you have to go through as a survivor of domestic violence, being able to, I mean, housing, you know, Gabby touched on housing a couple times when we have these different units now. I mean, I don't know if how you guys feel but in St. Pete it's extremely expensive to live and it's a huge issue right now 
rent is not affordable. No. Affordable housing is a, it's really a community crisis. And mm-hmm. so the fact that we have dozens of permanent supportive housing units now, the transitional housing, we also help survivors with um, financial assistance for down payments and different things like that where we can. So just being able to really expand those services over the last few years. Mm-hmm. I think for Gabby and I, it's really kind of, it, we're kind of looking at this chart right now, obviously you yeah. can't see, but it's really exciting to see that growth. And um, fun fact about Gabby and I, we started on the same exact day, three and almost three and a half years ago. Yeah, so like little work festivals. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love so, that. Yeah. So we've been able to really see Casa through the a lot of this together. growth. Yeah. yeah so I it is that. exciting. Are you guys like worried at all about like all of this development and the rising rent cost, like cost of living that like, are you worried about like those housing situations that you have for the survivors? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a huge issue. We are, with our permanent supportive housing, we're partnering with Bully, um, okay. who provides housing to people with um, mental health and mm-hmm. disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to get creative in the partnerships that we do have so we can really, at the mm-hmm. end of the day, be an affordable housing provider for survivors of domestic mm-hmm. violence. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is scary to see. Um, there's really nowhere in our community now that you can go to get an affordable rent and some of our survivors you know they had to leave everything behind Mm -hmm. they're starting over we we deal with people Mm -hmm. who are going through the immigration system so finding a full-time job when some of them also have Mm -hmm. a handful of children um, and you know affordable child care is a huge issue of course and so there are so many barriers, and so yeah. we're here, again, to try and help any way we can at whatever access point they're coming to us. Yeah. So. I will, like, always be an advocate that there's no need for a home to be as expensive as it is. Yeah. Like, a home and a roof over your head and childcare alone is a necessity. Yeah. Like, it's like it's just as, like, water and air. Yeah. It's not a luxury. It is a necessity. So the fact that it's so expensive to where it becomes a luxury mm-hmm. to have drives me crazy. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. We also try and connect our survivors with programs like mm-hmm. Habitat for Humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually previously before CASA worked at Habitat for Humanity. Okay. So programs like that are so important yes. where you're getting a 0% interest loan um, you immediately have equity the moment you make the purchase. Your your mortgage is super affordable. Um, so any sort of program like that that we can partner with in our community so we can provide affordable housing is important because at the end of the day, if you don't have a place to go with your children, mm-hmm. you may in, end up right back with your abuser. Yeah. Because they're the one holding the power, the finances a lot of times. Especially Sometimes if you the have mortgage. Kids. Yeah. yeah. You can't you can't be on the street with a bunch right. of kids. You, exactly. you can't do that. Yeah. It's you yeah. just can't. Yeah. You know? And mm-hmm. I think people forget, you know, like they have I think a lot of people take for granted their like homes because mm-hmm. when you're in an abusive situation and your home is always yelling and screaming and walking mm-hmm. on eggshells, being able to have your own home and your own mm-hmm. safe space is just like 
the biggest weight off your shoulders. I have chills. That was beautifully said. Yeah. It really <laughs> is. It was like Thank you. The, the definition yeah. of peace. I for mean, the first time for a lot of survivors. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, just like a little background on myself. Like my, my mother was like very abusive mm-hmm. and my, my father had to leave because mm-hmm. it, it was just getting too crazy and uh, he had to leave us with our mom. And it mm-hmm. took him until my, for the sake of, you know, not confusing the readers till my stepmom stepped in and was like, you have a right to go see your kids, go get your kids. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of forgot who my dad was. And the first time I talked to my dad again, I was like, who are you? Mm-hmm. I don't, I, yeah. you know. Well, and, uh, and that is such a misconception with domestic violence. You know, I, I do want to preface this by saying a lot of the most horrific incidents of domestic violence typically the perpetrator most commonly are men yes however we do we're one I wouldn't say one of the few shelters but we it's not as common for shelters to accept men Mm -hmm. we do accept all people in our shelter Um, and so sometimes we do have dads and their children staying at our emergency Mm -hmm. shelter because Mm -hmm. of situations like yours yeah and and it's surprising because a lot of people don't think like, oh, you know, it doesn't really happen to men, but it really does. And the thing is, is that a lot of, you know, men have to just kind of handle it by themselves and yeah. try to figure it out because they really don't think that there is help out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are organizations out there like us who will help, you know, men who are also going through domestic violence. Yeah. Like, I remember like the first like night, like where like my dad finally gained custody and I was like, oh shit, am I going to go back there again? Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is great (laughs) you know so it's like yeah like just having a home in general where you don't have to walk on eggshells anymore Mm -hmm. is so relieving Mm -hmm. it is you know so then what can be done at the state and federal level to help your cause more so really funding that's what it comes Mm -hmm. down to uh so you know domestic violence centers are unique in the fact that a lot of our funding does come mm-hmm. from the state and federal level. Um, we did just partner with Charlie Chris's office to, as he was working to pass the Family Violence Prevention Act, which does increase funding for domestic violence services. So that nice. is exciting. Um, but I mean, just at cost alone, you wouldn't know it from maybe looking at our website, but we have a hundred positions mm-hmm. at CASA. So a hundred people working in different advocacy roles and in different parts that make our organization run and, and it's expensive yeah. to run an organization like this um, and I will say while state and federal funding is super important um, and that legislation being passed to protect survivors is super important that funding oftentimes funds very specific positions very mm-hmm. specific programs what we need as an organization are the supporters in our community who are stepping up to give us those unrestricted gifts to help us keep these lights on. Because at the end of the day, um, running, I mean, mm-hmm. I think we just maybe we have eight properties now throughout yeah. a different shelter, housing, mm-hmm. this building, yeah. building across the street. So, and we have a big project coming online. So that kind of support is also extremely important. Okay. Is there, like, any, like, laws that you would really like to see, like, set forth that would really, really start fully punishing um, abusers and really kind of make it to where it's just, like, it it hopefully stops? 
So I think we can talk a little bit about um, BIP. Yeah, or I was thinking too that, you know, there's a lot of, it's really interesting when you look at Florida, there's a lot of different states who have really interesting laws um, that, like you said, would hold the perpetrator or that abuser accountable. Um, I think California has a rule that, you know, their BIP, which is Batter's Intervention Program, is actually 54 weeks. Our statute is 29 weeks. So, you know, that is a longer term accountability and that program is meant to um, kind of provide um, sort of therapy for the abuser to kind of turn, you know, hopefully turn that behavior and teach what power and control is and how to not properly express it, but um, how to not always want to have that power and control and teach other healthier behaviors of not exerting that power and control onto another person. Um, So that's the intent of that. So it's interesting how um, some states have laws that, like you said, are just, you know, hold them more accountable. Um, I think another one is, I think California too has um, just stricter like uh, minimum sentencing for those who commit domestic violence. So the intent of that is, is if you have a longer sentence the first time and maybe you just don't get a slap on the hand that you would have, you know, like, oh man, I don't want to go back to jail. I don't mm-hmm. want to be in trouble so that you would hopefully prevent from reoffending. Um, so I don't, I can't think of anything specific. There's a lot that we could probably yeah. dive into and talk about. Um, but I think it's interesting as Florida, as a state, we could maybe look into what other states are doing and see what's working out there <clears throat> and what's not working out there to see what kind of um, legislative changes we could make. Yeah, and I like that idea of, like, in a sense, like, treating the problem at the root, which is, like, why do, like, abusers abuse, Mm -hmm. you know? And a lot of times it's just, like, that's what they grew up with. That's just kind of what they know, you know? The abuse, obviously receiving abuse themselves, Mm -hmm. you know? You're exactly right. And domestic violence, a lot of times people may look at it like an anger management issue or a mental health issue. Domestic violence is a learned behavior, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes perpetrators of domestic violence grew up in a DV household. It's just, you know, as human beings, we have this really interesting thing about us where we can literally get used to anything, and anything can really become normal if you're exposed to it Mm -hmm. enough. And Mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, I think the hope is that our our number one focus at CASA is safety of survivors, Mm -hmm. and so... Um, we're, we're not really in the, we're not currently in the business of rehabilitating abusers, but we do believe that, you know, you can maybe unlearn some of those behaviors of power Mm -hmm. and control. I feel like if anyone works hard enough, they can, you know, and they, they really want to, Mm -hmm. you know? So then how can the people of St. Pete like volunteer and help you guys more here? Well, we're so thrilled about the fact that we finally have our volunteer program back up and running (laughs) post-COVID. It's so exciting to see our volunteers um, back in our offices, volunteering for events. Um, So we have a whole host of of volunteer opportunities. I would suggest that anyone listening go to our website, Mm -hmm. um, the volunteer section of our website. We hold... um, 
Twice a month, we hold volunteer orientations where you can come and learn all about the program, see if it's a right fit for you before you go through the process of you know, doing the application and the paperwork. Because we are a domestic violence center, there's always a background check yes. involved with that. Um, and then we have two different kinds of volunteers. One we are called direct service volunteers and one are indirect service volunteers. Direct service volunteers can get to the point where they are working with survivors of domestic violence or they are maybe working in a support group um, for survivors or working in our shelter. To do that, they have to go through um, what's called core training. So it's essentially 24 hours of training. Yep, so it's 24 hours of like in-classroom training and then six additional hours for like hands-on, like observing or um, you know shadowing like an advocate. Um, so it comes out to a total of 30 hours and the intent is just that um, they would have privilege so that if a survivor shares anything with you, um, it would be confidential and you know you would have um, privilege as far as Florida statute goes. So if you were subpoenaed or a court case, you wouldn't necessarily have to testify against that survivor if they didn't want to. Mm-hmm. So that is definitely an opportunity if someone is interested in doing more of that direct advocacy work. Um, we also have the opportunity if you are core certified volunteer to work out of our courthouses with our justice advocates. Um, so there's a lot of cool opportunities there, but I don't want anyone to get discouraged because that sounds like a lot of training. <laughs> we have so many volunteer opportunities yeah. at CASA that are unrelated to doing that one-on-one service with survivors, but really still do make such an impact. Mm-hmm. One of them being in our thrift store, mm-hmm. um, mainly operated by volunteers. We do have a lot of um, volunteers come and work with us here in our admin office and just help with some of our day-to-day activities. One exciting thing that we've recently ramped up is the CASA street team volunteers. And so we there are so many community events happening that we're always invited to, but it's our staff don't necessarily have the time to make it to all of them. So we train our street team volunteers to be well-versed on our mission, on our programs, and giving out information. And so they just they go table events, engage with our community, talk about CASA and our programs. Um, if someone comes up who identifies a survivor, getting them access to our hotline or our resources. So that is a really cool opportunity, but I would again suggest anyone who's interested to come to one of our volunteer orientations. Our volunteer coordinator, Laura, shout out to her. She's on my team, love her. Um, She is really cool and um, is just super engaged with all of our volunteers. Nice, that sounds like there's a lot of like fun and really like Mm -hmm. uplifting opportunities there, you know, to help if people in the community really wanted to help. And then, so like this is like really for like, you know, survivors, Um, like how can they reach you if they need your help? Yeah, and I think the biggest is that 24-hour hotline um, because someone's always there to answer the phone. Um, If it's not an emergency, um, we we also have our chat feature, which can be reached um, during business hours if they have any questions about CASA or, like, let's say, you know, someone has a friend that's going through something and they just want to know what kind of resources are out there. Um, And then we also have our um, info at casapinellas.org, which is an email that people can reach us out to. But... Um, I would say for a survivor, mainly our hotline is the best option. The best route. Okay. And then I would really like to talk about like warning signs 
especially for like young people you know because like you know like when we think of like really young people so like let's say like between like 16 and and 25 you know you're really impressionable at that age Mm -hmm. um like what warning signs can you give them about relationships that could possibly turn abusive Mm -hmm. that they could know and just be like okay red flag gotta go Mm -hmm. and hopefully you know they're strong enough to be like okay i love you but this is a red flag and this is not what i want for me and Mm -hmm. to kind of hightail it out of there yeah absolutely um there is a lot of um like you said red flags when it comes to domestic violence and unfortunately there's that you know perception that domestic violence is just that physical Mm -hmm. um aspect right but it is a lot more than that so you know it usually doesn't start off physical so that's a you know a big warning sign it really starts off with kind of like emotional and verbal abuse you know kind of putting somebody down um, maybe starting to be controlling starting to control who you may hang out with hey I don't really like that friend I don't really want you to hang out with them tonight um, and then just kind of slowly isolating the survivor at that point because um, it's easier to control someone when they're you're that sole person mm-hmm. that you can depend on right yeah um, another one is um, like Taylor said, controlling what you wear, when you can go shopping, controlling finances, right? Um, it's a lot harder to leave an abusive relationship if you don't have finances, right? Um, another one is, um, you know, like constantly putting that pressure on to like check in. Like they call you like 20 times a day. What are you doing? Where are you at? Who are you with? Um, those are really the red flags. And usually that's how it starts. And then it escalates from there to become more physical. Um, and speaking of physical, you know, strangulation is one of the biggest um, red flags because it could really turn lethal. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of the um, strangulation cases, abusers who strangle are 750 times more likely to kill that person. So it's it's pretty a big red flag. and. Here at CASA, we kind of assess, like when people are telling us their story, we kind of assess some of those factors that are going on, some of those red flags. And the more they're checked off, the more lethal or dangerous that relationship is. And strangulation is probably at the top of that list. Ugh. Yeah. Just like, yeah, like just like, that's your, that's like your windpipe. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's that, literally like, yeah. that person's like, you're holding that person's hand like I mean person's life, life yeah. in your hand like yeah just one more second could determine whether that person lives, lives or, or dies. dies yeah and something we do at CASA is we partner really closely with law enforcement to make sure that they um, have the training and resources to understand and ask the right questions when they arrive on a scene mm-hmm. of domestic violence a lot of times um, mm-hmm. a survivor will say something like, well, he grabbed me by the neck and was shaking me. Mm-hmm. But unless you are using very specific terms or if they're, you have to ask the right questions to uncover, did they, they block their mm-hmm. air pipe? Um, you know, and oftentimes uh, physical signs of strangulation don't come about until a day or two later. Mm-hmm. So bruising, bloodshot eyes, things like that. So um, mm-hmm. just making sure that that every both parties understand, you know, mm-hmm. the correct language to use because like Gabby said, it's a high lethality indicator um, and it's also a felony. So, and it's really important to notate that if, if someone has strangled you, I mean, that that is a felony yeah. charge. 
Yeah. And that's a great point, Taylor, because a lot of the times, you know, survivors are in such shock of what just happened, right? And if you're strangled, you may pass out, right? You may have lost consciousness. So when the police comes out, you know, they have the best intentions to ask all those questions, but they may just not be in the right state of mind to be yes. able to process. So mm-hmm. as much as they want to communicate that information they correctly, can. sometimes it just, it, it can't, you can't, right? So like she said, oh, they put their hands on my throat, but you know, it's a little bit more than that. You didn't just choke, like you, you were strangled and you lost consciousness, but it's hard to articulate that when you're just in such a state of crisis and trauma. So can the police, like, so if like the police came on to like a, a possible domestic violence situation and they were called out to that and, um, you know, and a, a sort of like a survivor said like, oh, well, they put their hands on my throat. Can the police not do anything with that? Like, they can ask more questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that that's the mo- most important mm-hmm. thing is uncovering exactly what happened. Yeah. And I think, it, like she said, it's just really about asking the follow-up questions. And, you know, sometimes when survivors come to us um, and, you know, the, they're thinking and maybe they're recalling the incident that happened and now they're like, oh, well, I actually remember this or I remember that. Um, we work with our law enforcement partners and we just, you know, try to advocate for that person on their behalf if they want us to, um, to talk to maybe that police officer who may have done the arrest or maybe wrote that police report to add additional information to the report, um, which is called a supplement. Okay. That's good to know that you can do that, mm-hmm. you know, and Absolutely. add that, Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. So then what are the goals for CASA during the next up? year what are you guys hoping to achieve and get started so we just this October like I said October is domestic violence awareness month Mm -hmm. so it was super busy but we did unveil at our peace celebration event um, that we are bringing Florida's only family justice center to St. Pete actually Um, the family justice center is a Um, best practice model from the United States Department of Justice. There are family justice centers throughout the globe, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And essentially, it is a one-stop shop for survivors of domestic violence to access any service they may need. Mm -hmm. Right here in Pinellas County, we did a little study and we found that survivors have to travel 20 times, tell their story 17 times, miss at least 53 hours of work, fill out almost 300 pages of paperwork just to get the access, the minimum access to safety and healing. And so what the Family Justice Center does is brings all of those locations together in one place, mental health services, law enforcement, state attorney's office, child care, Mm -hmm. um, just medical resources. We can do safe exams on site for people who have also been sexually assaulted. Um, And so having that one place, and so you're met with one trauma-informed victim advocate who then you come into like a really comfortable, like say this right here could be a living room space, Mm -hmm. really comfortable living room space. You're met with a trauma-informed advocate. You tell your story. And then these service providers come into the living room space to meet with you. And so you're even... We're not even making you travel all around Everyone's our building. Everyone's coming to you. Yeah. Everyone's coming to you. It's this one-stop location. I mean, the ideal situation is that a survivor would be able to only only have to tell their story one time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's ideal. And so we've been working with the Alliance for Hope International, who is the um, certifying organization for family justice centers across the globe. And 
We just did a strategic planning event, like I said, unveiling this project, and we will be doing a soft opening in July, and we will um, be doing our grand opening event next October. That's so awesome. That's exciting. Very exciting. It is definitely going to change, you know, how survivors access services in our Mm -hmm. community, which is really the idea to create that support, right? Because if you're in one building and everyone's here for you, right? Mm -hmm. Like everyone's here to figure out whatever barriers you may have and there's someone in the building or maybe someone that we can connect you to that has that expertise or that can help you navigate all of that um, really creates that support that they really need in order to move forward. Because like Taylor mentioned earlier, you know, it's really easy when you don't have that support or those financial resources to easily fall back. So the idea is is that we would create that warm, supportive environment um, for survivors to get everything they need under one roof. Mm-hmm. And it again, it's a proven model. So it reduces the recidivism. Um, mm-hmm. And it in the city of San Diego, where the first family justice center st- started, it reduced domestic violence homicides by 90% in the city of San yeah. Diego. That is huge. That's a really big yeah. percentage. Yeah, you know yeah in just the last five years alone 43 people have lost their lives to domestic violence right here in our community and so and we had Mm -hmm. i think we're up to 12 already this year in pinellas county so it's been a very deadly year this year for um the issue of domestic violence so we're really excited about bringing this opportunity to our community yeah Mm -hmm. yeah definitely Gabby, Taylor, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us. I think this has just been very informationable and, and knowledgeable, not just for myself, but for you know our listeners too. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening, St. Pete. Please subscribe to our podcast so you can catch all the fun conversations we will have with our local artists and business owners. For some fun behind the scenes, follow us on Instagram at goodmorningstpete. We hope you all have a sunny day and remember to always stay super cool.